Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. Each Monday morning, we open the doors to the Liquid Markets Group team meeting where we discuss the current market conditions. Uh, and with that in mind, let's get straight into it. So, sure. Stu, where would you like to start? Would you like to start with the COVID update? Um, having read some of the weekend press, it, uh, there were suggestions that economics was going to come back into, you know, into vogue with regards to pricing. Where would you like to start today? Yeah, COVID-19 update, I think, is the best place to start today. And it's looking increasingly likely that we're going to have to get used to a, a fairly elevated rate of infections in the U.S., Uh, The curve just isn't flattening there. And with restrictions easing in a number of states, and you can see that from some of the mobility trends data, particularly Apple's, then you haven't really seen a flattening of the curve yet in the US. The R0 looks to be around one, which means that every infected person goes on to infect one other person. And that leaves you with a plateau in terms of new infections. And that's pretty much the case that that we saw with the first week of April, the average rate, daily rate of new infections was probably around 35,000. Currently, over the last five-day period, the average rate of new infections is still around 30,000. So even a month on, we still haven't really seen that dip. And... Part of that is that those those early states that went quite hard on restrictions, and I put New York and New Jersey in that basket, um, they've managed to slow the pace of infections, but there are a lot of other states which are later to um, to see the epidemic spread, and it's they're still hitting uh, a peak rate of daily infections. But as we open up society in the US, it's hard to see that rate of new infections drop in a material way. And um, and you're actually seeing that as well in another chart where it shows that throughout the entire month of April and into early May, when you take the US excluding those early states, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, the rate of new infections grew steadily throughout the entire month. And so this is really going to present a challenge for the second half. Because at the moment, I'd argue that the the market's expectation is that we'll see this strong rebound in growth in the second half. It might not be a V-shaped recovery, but it's going to be strong enough so that people can project uh, a return to normal, at least in 2021. But it's going to be hard to, to feel like you've got a return to normal if your new cases, new infections persists at around 30,000 a day. And the big danger is that the market and investors will realize that you won't get this strong rebound in the second half of the year, that you'll still feel challenged. Uh, The economy will still have this growth inhibitor into 2021. That's going to stress corporate earnings for longer. Uh, It's going to be a challenge to bring down the unemployment rate quickly as the economy doesn't return to normal. Uh, FOMC emergency measures would have to remain in place longer than expected. U.S. government finances are going to be pressured for much longer than expected, and it's going to challenge uh, that return to normal. Um, And it's probably going to keep a lid on bond yields, uh, 
through deflationary impacts and FOMC measures uh, and also pressure the US dollar as the US economy lags the rest of the developed world in terms of that growth rebound. So I think that you know tracking the rate of infections in the US is very important as they ease restrictions here uh, and this could become you know one of the major themes in the second half of the year. Stu, do you think that's partially why we've had uh, you know a lot of news over the weekend with regards to the Wuhan lab um, theory? Is that um, uh, what's your take on that with regards to um, perhaps geopolitical strategy? Yeah, it's it's that's a challenge to markets as well because it's uh, I guess there's there's two points to make here. One is there's global pressure on China to investigate the source of the infection and China at the moment shows no interest in following that up. Um, but secondly, it's also an election strategy from Trump who wants to really deflect the attention of um, what he's done and put the blame squarely on China. So what this provides for the market is more uncertainty going forward because we, we did have that trade deal. We do have that trade deal in place. And there is potential for for that to unravel, or new tariffs to be imposed, as uh, as Trump tries to, I guess, escalate the um, the war of words with China. Bev, um, Stu just mentioned before the impact or potential impact on bond yields. Um, could we possibly just get your view on how, if this you know situation plays out that Stu's just described, uh, the growth inhibitor for 2021, rising in employment, your view on bond yields and also any updates with regards to bond yields over the weekend? Yeah, so I guess that, you know, the main theme in bond markets in the last few weeks has been stability, um, you know, set against quite a big resumption or improvement in risk sentiment in in equities and and corporate credit markets. You know, bond markets really haven't felt that um, sense of optimism um, with yields going sideways. Just to kind of put that into perspective, the last three weeks, since basically the middle of April, the US 10-year yield has been in a 10 basis point range through that whole three-week period. And the average daily moves have only been, you know, one or two basis points. So, you know, bond markets aren't reacting um, in in terms of the improved sentiment in other markets that we've seen. They're not reacting to economic data as it's coming in. And, you know, we've seen uh, you know, just a, a whole, um, you know, series of data just in the last 48 hours with um, the release of global PMIs for April um, coming in still extremely weak levels. Bond markets are not reacting to those either. So right here and now, I think bond markets are kind of caught between, um, you know, two, you know, big offsetting forces. And and one of those is obviously, as, as Stu mentioned, um, the realisation that central banks are going to have to keep, um, you know, rates at zero for a very long period of time. They're going to have to be doing QE and and, and, and broad easing measures for, for a long period as well. But at the same time, we have the fiscal authorities going to continue to need to, to um, you know, extend or um, increase the amount of assistance they're providing to the economy um, if um, this normalisation of activity is extended, you know, the fiscal authorities are going to have to be there. 
And so budget deficits uh, are, are likely to continue to balloon wider. Uh, and so issuance and the supply of bonds globally is going to be a theme that I think is, is going to you know, bond markets are going to have to live with for the next few years. So right now, they're kind of torn between those two. So at the moment that, you know, yields are going nowhere. Um, and, and I suspect, you know, maybe we stay in that environment for a little while yet. But, you know, our, our, our view is that, you know, I think given the fact that the, the Fed has already sort of started to step back a little bit, um, as it did on Friday, it announced an, a further step down to its buying program this week. So they're um, buying $8 billion this week, down from $10 billion last week. The RBA also has stepped down um, its pace of purchases that alongside the ballooning fiscal issuance, um, that probably there's going to be a bit more upward pressure, particularly at the long end of yield curves over the next um, sort of you know, year or two. And, and look, this will take a while to play out. As, as Stu said, I think, you know, what we've seen um, over the last month is, you know, obviously the depths of despair of March are behind us and the market is quite confident that perhaps, we're, you know, we're past the peak in terms of global um, new cases um, and looking towards the normalisation. Um, but I think we, we've seemed to have reached a bit of a consolidation point now here where, markets are now digesting how quickly that's going to happen, how quickly the reinfection rates are going to happen um, and, and how much, you know, corporate defaults we're going to have to live with in the meantime. So it, it feels like that is going to take a while to play out um, before markets sort of get a bit of certainty on, on that next step. Um, and, and for now, you know, bond markets sort of caught in the middle and doing doing very little. And Bev, would you say that's a similar view you take on inflation at the moment as well, just given you've got all this fiscal, fiscal stimulus, but you've got also these competing forces? Do you see inflation sort of behaving in a similar way? It, look, it's very it's very similar in that we we know in the short run, when when I say short run, I mean probably you know several quarters, um, that there's going to be a lot of disinflationary forces um, brought about by by you know the contraction in economic activity that we're living through right now. I think there's. There's no question that it's going to be a downward influence on inflation. You know how big. You know we've talked about that over the last few weeks as well. The broad of the, the broad range of um, you know uncertainty here is very large. We could get some very big numbers, but you know the uncertainty for us, and this is more again more of a longer term thing. You know five years down the track or, or ten years down the track. You know if we do manage to come out of this, you know, in, in the next couple of quarters and, and back to sort of some sense of normal, um, whilst we still have enormous amounts of balance sheet expansion from central banks, enormous, amount, enormous amounts of fiscal, um, you know, expansion from the from the government authorities that I think it just, it just leaves open a range of prospective inflation outcomes that perhaps we haven't had um, in the last 10 years where, you know, we've had a lot of monetary stimulus and it's very clear that the last decade of pure monetary stimulus alone does very little in terms of generating inflationary pressure. But having that monetary stimulus alongside fiscal stimulus is a is a new set of of, of combinations that I think we're not we haven't really seen um, what what that sort of stimulus can can do. So I think for us it's it's not a view that you know we're going to see upside um, you know inflation in the next few months. It's certainly not that at all. It's just one that you know longer term the range of inflation outcomes are probably more uncertain than they've been in the past, and people should be thinking about some prospective risk premium inflation risk premium further down the track. 
Thanks, Bev. You mentioned issuance is going to be a theme. Um, I'm just wondering if that's a good time to pivot to Paul and Richie on the credit markets. And Paul, I know that we've got the euro update coming out tomorrow. So is it a good um, spot to sort of stay in the credit space? And is there any key updates there with regards to, um, I suppose, uh, global credit indices uh, before we move into single names? Uh, yeah, um, just, just before we go into the, uh, I'll let Richard sort of cover the, the indices and whatnot, but um, uh, the ECB announced last night um, the uh, PEPP information and the PSPP information. Um, what we talked about last March was massive. We were shouting a lot about things called capital keys and uh, all of these uh wonderful acronyms that we use. But what that essentially means is that the ECBs announced last night that they bought an additional uh, 6.4 billion Italian bonds in April. That equates to, I think, if my calculations are right, roughly about 46 billion extra in Italian bonds. And who suffers from that? That's right, that's German bonds. Um, I've been the exact um, change of that. So essentially, ECBs uh, unlimited QE is coming into fruition, as we sort of had, had stated for a while. And that's quite significant, really. What, what that means is um, it, it's not just um, uh, backstopping, you know, the, the lower rates and whatnot. They're really financing Italy at these lower levels. So I think that's a very strong sign. And goes to what Bev said, by the means, it means yields remain anchored. It means a lot of things, but it also means a lot of supply going forward as well. So that's just an update from the ECB there from me. Uh, Richard or Phil on the macro side? Yeah, um, so credit spreads moderately wider sort of over, over the weekend. Uh, you know, in minis that last night, um, equities were, were up a little bit. Um, I think the big news in credit market or continuation of the big news is really the Fed um, coming out and saying that both the primary and secondary market corporate credit facilities um, is expected to begin, begin purchasing eligible securities in early May. Um, so additional details of timing will be made available closer to the time that they, they, uh, those dates approach. Um, and, you know, the, the, the starting of this, this um, actual purchase by the Fed could further support um, credit markets, despite the rally we've had so far. And, you know, it is incredible, and we have talked about this a number of times, how much um, the credit market has taken from just the Fed even talking about buying credit securities. And really, you know, the Fed solving the liquidity issue just with jawboning alone. And, you know, now as we move into early May, we, we're obviously going to see those um, purchases actually come into fruition. Um, so, you know, the performance of spreads will be, you know, a function of these Fed purchases, but also, you know, the sustainability and strength of the economic recovery ahead. And, and that's really the difficult part to know. But clearly the markets to this juncture have taken great solace from the fact that um, central banks and, and governments with their, with their fiscal spend are, are really helping here. So we sort of move into the next stage of, of you know, what the economic recovery looks like. Um, and, you know, in those comments that Stu made around, you know, that that is hinges also on, you know, how, how COVID kind of um, morphs in society as well is important. Um, 
Richie, just on that topic there, what, what are the triggers you're looking for? Like you've got, if you've got the credit markets really reacting favourably to even Fed announcements, like you just said before, but you had Stu's backdrop here of, you know, that this is going to go on longer, that you've got the states opening up arguably maybe a little bit early, and that's leading to some curve impact in terms of COVID-19, which will lead to economic sort of outcomes in the longer run and, and particularly around growth. How is that going to play out in the credit markets and what are the sort of the triggers you're looking for? Well, I mean, like everyone else, we'll be watching like the economic data and, and obviously the, you know, the, the data to this point, everyone's discounted it because we know we've got sort of, um, you know, COVID and, and we've got the shutdown. But obviously then going through time as we come out of the shutdown, how does that recovery look? And then so that's sort of the macro sort of side of things. And, and, you know, that's also impinged by what's happening with, with COVID and, and the recovery or, or not, um, and the infection rates and all, all the stuff we've been watching over the past few months. And then I think on the macro side, and maybe Phil can sort of talk to this, but really then it's around the announcements that we do get from the different um, corporates and how you know, their balance sheets are coping with this stress and, and what their profitability looks like and then what they're, what they're doing um, to keep their balance sheets um, strong and, and to keep that platform strong um, and to enable them to, to um, survive through, you know, what, what might be a pretty bumpy path for, for markets and macroeconomic conditions. Phil, yeah, thanks add for that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, Craig, I'll just add to that. Um, I guess what we're seeing in reporting season so far, so at a high level, just as an introduction, so we're about 60% of the way through the US um, Q1 earnings season. And in terms of the blended results that Stu's talked about in the past, that's a combination of the 60% that are reported to date and the consensus estimates for the remaining 40%. So um, we're looking at a year-on-year year first quarter decline of about 13.7%. Um, and that's actually um, less than it was a week ago, which was down 16%. And that's a function of some better than expected results from uh, healthcare, um, the likes of Gilead, also energy. So Exxon, Chevron reported last week and had better than, better than consensus results. And then some of the tech stocks, the big tech stocks, Apple, Microsoft, um, beating as well. And then, but if you think about what's going on in the outlook side of things, so for many industries, um, they're citing a high level of uncertainty over the outlook for earnings and some are, many of the cyclicals and the transport retail focused sectors are um, pulling their guidance and, and saying that Q2 is likely to be the worst. And that, that's not a surprise, but it just indicates that um, at a corporate level that the, the real impact is getting harder as we go into this quarter now, into the June quarter. Um, and then, but that leads us to what we're seeing in that um, credit versus equity, a bit of divergence over um, the impact. So the, the creditor-friendly measures that we've been talking about, such as bolstering liquidity um, through uh, increasing the revolving bank lines or through issuance in markets where it's open, particularly the US, US dollar market. Uh, they've also been cutting capex, um, taking costs out, deferring dividends, and in some cases, um, new equity raising. So. All of these things have been positive for credit and are supportive, I guess, of the credit, maintaining credit fundamentals in a really difficult environment. So that's what, I guess, as well as that big Fed and central bank and fiscal um, stimulus that's supportive of credit, 
you're also seeing a, a creditor-friendly environment um, for corporates generally. And so credit spreads in, in the US and IG have been probably tracking sideways over the last um, several weeks. Like volatility has been smaller, as Rich and Bev alluded to, um, but net-net we've gone roughly sideways. High yield is probably under, underperforming, a bit of decompression, and that's because high yield will probably bear the brunt in terms of that's where defaults will be. Um, and there is a lot price for defaults as we stand with high yield cash spreads in the US are around 750. So they've come in a long way, but still relatively elevated. I think what's Thanks, Phil. Any, remember oh, go ahead, Paul. Different asset classes um, will assign risk adjusted ratings down, right? So, you know, credit, while it's tracking sideways, is uh, from risk adjusted basis risk-adjusted basis doing very well in that regard. And I think that's something to bear in mind. We've reset credit to wider levels. Now, that it reflects already a huge sort of negative outlook and sort of into the second quarter, et cetera, and a lower growth trajectory further on. And really, it's whether, you know, the equity markets get ahead of themselves in that. That's a different story of whether credit markets how they're priced in this as well. So not all the asset classes are pricing exactly the same thing. It's like Bev said, you know, um, even with this equity euphoria that we've seen over the last six weeks, uh, rates have been relatively benign. They, they, they have priced in uh, a lot of negativity here going forward. Thanks, Paul. Phil, was there any um, particular single name updates you want to sort of um, highlight? You mentioned Chevron before, which was last week. Anything that's come out later in the week last week you want to highlight? Probably the main one is really Westpac here, Craig, I think. Um, and Rich, not sure if you want to comment on that or, or I can yeah. otherwise. Yeah, I can. I mean, you know, underlying results were sound and, and similar to ANZ, they went down the track of wholly suspending their dividend. Um, and But Results overall were pretty supportive for credit. Um, net profit was 1.19 billion and that was down um, 67% on the previous period. But really, again, similar to ANZ and NAB before, the most of the lower profit was due to increased provisions. Um, the core tier one ratio um, was up slightly to 10.81%. So again, you know, and similar to what Phil sort of talked about, you know, raising provisions, cutting, suspending dividends, really putting the, the credit investor ahead of um, ahead of the equity investor and making sure that that balance sheet is fortress-like. Um, so, you know, from a credit investment point of view, you know, a pretty decent result there. Um, interestingly, you know, now that we've had Westpac, NAB and ANZ, you know, they've, they've reported now and they've made total collective provisions of three and a half billion to reflect, you know, the potential impact of COVID-19. So really trying to get ahead of what that might be. And that's 58 bits of their total um, their total loan book. And so the three banks so far have provided um, about 135 billion of repayment deferrals. And so that's 33 billion to Australian businesses and then 102 billion to households. And that's equivalent to around seven percent of their um, of their total loans outstanding. So you know that, as we've said before, you know the banks are in a in a great position coming into this. Their balance sheets are in we're in good a good place. Um, they've continued to solidify that, and you know they will be um, you know one of the key supports um, for the Australian economy to sort of to move out of 
out of this. And obviously, you know, the, the RBA is helping them a lot with, you know, their term loan facility um, that allows banks to, to borrow from the RBA at, um, at 25 basis points. Yeah, excellent stuff. Um, uh, Rob, I might just quickly switch to you because we've sort of been hearing that um, equities uh, hasn't got the best outlook compared to credit. Has that been playing out in the markets from your point of view? And maybe you can also hear from a, a volatility side of things as well. Yeah, sure, Craig. Um, in terms of, I guess, since we last chatted on Friday, equities are off the ground about 3%. So the S&Ps uh, outperformed. Uh, Euro stocks was off around 3.8%, whereas the S&P is only off 2.8% since that time. Uh, In terms of vol markets, they're up a little bit. They're up about two vol points, but that's sort of been a mixture of Friday night. They were up quite a bit, and then they've sort of come off about one vol on Friday night. Um, The term structure has steepened a little bit at the front, um, but October is still above 30, so around about the 33 mark. What's been interesting actually on the oil vol side of things is we've had quite a few days of really big drops in implied vol. So uh, we've sort of been tracking the July 30 strike uh, WTI contract, and that's off another 15 vol uh, since we talked on Friday, which is sort of bring it down to around about an 82% volatility, uh, whereas it was up in the sort of 122 range. And Stu or Rob, the background to those, the oil vol dropping, is that with regards to, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about there's a supply and demand element to this particular market. Is that more of a supply thing with regards to some, you know, uh, cuts that are supposed to be coming through in early May? Oh, I mean, we've definitely seen the price uh, rally significantly um, since early May. And it's up another sort of dollar this morning, um, bringing it to I think around about a dollar six, uh, sorry, a dollar sixty since we spoke on Friday. Um, in terms of I guess that drop, it's probably more related I guess to I guess the market is forecasting uh, smaller moves, albeit still quite large in the context of where volatility is historically traded. Thanks, Rob. Stu, um, you mentioned before the US dollar's likely to be under some pressure in the future. Is there an update on currency markets for us to be aware of in the spite of, you know, we just had an oil update then and we also had the general market update? Yeah, I'd probably just caveat the, the US dollar under pressure is is more of a longer term story if things play out as, uh, as was outlined earlier. So day to day, you know, you're probably not going to see that come through and we're still not seeing a huge differentiation between currencies based on their uh, performance, if you like, of tackling the coronavirus. But um, but at least over the last few sessions, there hasn't been much of a theme in currency markets. Uh, there's a big bit of a mix of emerging markets on top of the performance table. At the bottom of the performance table, the US dollar's done okay against some currencies, but weakened against others. So yeah, really not much of a a theme that you can really take away from it. Thanks for that, Stu. Uh, we might wrap it up there. Thank you to our audience for listening today. Please watch out for our next investor podcast and have a great day.